Welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode we're asking, what's new in archaeology? Today I'm talking to Professor Martin Millett, Lawrence Professor of Classical Archaeology at the Faculty of Classics at Cambridge and a former head of the University's School of Arts and Humanities. Currently he also heads the University of Cambridge's own two-year inquiry into how it may have contributed to and profited from slavery. And in the field, his insistence on new approaches to excavation has led to collaborations with geophysicists and big data specialists, as well as sound and visual artists. Basically, it all involves a lot of careful listening. Well, I'm here in the Museum of Classical Archaeology, just on top of the Faculty of Classics here at the University of Cambridge. And I'm walking into a museum full of busts of Greek and Roman gods. I'm being joined by a class of primary school children who are all busy with their clipboards learning about Greek and Roman life, but I'm actually here to meet Professor Martin Millett, Professor of Classical Archaeology here at Cambridge. Ah, oh, Professor Millett, hello, pleased to meet you. Hello, nice to meet you. This is a pretty awe-inspiring place to meet you. Um, what do you want to show me first? Well, I thought uh, you might like to just have a look at the head of the Emperor Claudius here. Oh, wow. Which um, comes from East Anglia, comes from the River Ald in Suffolk. This was found in a river, this amazing bronze head. In the early 20th century. Oh my word. Um, Life size bronze head of the statue of the Emperor Claudius, who's the emperor, of course, who uh, conquers Britain in AD 43. Oh my goodness. And, And this was left behind as the empire marched on and was found in a river only in, let's have a look at that, 1907. It's not certain how it got there. Probably comes from Colchester and there's a fair chance that it was part of the loot that was taken from Colchester by Queen Boudicca in AD 60-61. I think it was just a, a dredging find. Um, but gosh, what a find. <laughs> yeah. Is archaeology full of moments like that? Um, it has a few, yes. <laughs> well, we can go to your office now and you can tell me a little bit more about what you found uh, in the last summer, your last dig, if you would be OK with that. Perfect. Oh, my goodness. Martin, we are in your office right now, which is exactly, I think, how I imagined your office <laughs> might look. Pamphlets and books absolutely piled everywhere. A Roman-looking bust in the corner. Who's that? That's Cicero from the Classics Collection of Casts, looking over my shoulder. <laughs> yes, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. <laughs> and then there's all these crates next to your desk. I mean, yeah. three or four deep. What, what are in those? Well, that's the product of last uh, May's excavation at Aldborough in North Yorkshire. Oh, it's largely animal bone and a few crates of other finds uh, that are in the process of being 
study process too. Wow. Uh, Could you show me some? Could you? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so let's give you something. Oh, there you are. A nice, uh, nice bag of uh, animal bones. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, the sort of food refuse that was falling out. Um, uh, food refuse and so forth from a late 4th century uh, dump of oh the gosh. excavations on the edge of a Roman town. Like modern towns, it produ they produce a load of rubbish and yeah. uh, archaeology is the you know, study of other people's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but from the bones, you can identify the species, the part of the animal, you get things like cut marks on them that tell you how it was butchered and oh. therefore what the food processing was. Yeah, untouched in the earth um, from yeah. what pit, what year? Very late 4th, perhaps 5th century, right at the end of Roman use. And then they, this summer they appear in your office in, That's a, right. in an archive. Yeah. It's, it's so magical handling um, these things. Uh, what is the object that you have personally had in your hands that ma has made you think, oh my goodness, here they are, here are the Romans? Oh, that's a terribly difficult question because um, I, I suppose that takes me back to, you know, when I was a schoolboy and first yeah. was involved in archaeology because you then do get that real buzz of, gosh, you know, no one's touched this for 2,000 years and so forth. And it, generally speaking, it's the everyday things that, I think appeal most and yes. that's actually what archaeology can do most for people which is connecting with ordinary people in the past rather than our Cicero and yes. so forth um, so it's things like uh, the pots and so forth that were used in people's everyday lives and so forth so that's really where you get the connection i saw um on one of your online lectures that you confessed you had i think the word you used was blagged your membership to the roman society when you were just 15 <laughs> right, and they yeah. bent the rules to let yeah, you in no, so i mean it was all your path was already set it was a roman yeah. road yeah well no i I've, I've sort of deviated in uh into other periods of archaeology but the roman society the the uh, it was Patricia Gilbert, who was the secretary back then, was you know somebody who really wanted to encourage people. So it's... And who had first taken you on your first dig, and, and where had it been? Well, my my first digging experience uh, was when I was a schoolboy of about twelve or something with the Farnham Museum Society on the Surrey Hampshire border, okay. actually working on a medieval moated manor site. Uh, but archaeology. Uh, in the 1970s uh, was not run very much on a well hardly at all on a professional basis and that local society used to go out at weekends and look at building sites and so forth so you got a very rapid um, early training in whatever was turning up and Roman stuff happened to be the stuff that was turning up on a big scale. And do you remember finding your first Roman item? Well, I can remember uh, the thing that really ended up putting me on this course, which was that um, we were, um, it was when the A31 was being rebuilt around Alton okay. in 1969, 1970, and we went out to uh, walk the line of the road to see what was there. Um, 
Not, I think, with the permission of the <laughs> highways well, authority. You didn't worry well, about it. It was uh, with the local society, so it, it wasn't just kids. It was a, it's a serious part-time archaeologist. And we found a, um, a series of big Roman cremation graves with oh, wow. um, sort of literally dozens of what had been complete pots that had just been knocked by the machine, oh, just lying gosh. all over the place. <laughs> And we then dug the site and, and someone had to find out about the pots and I ended up finding out about the pots. <laughs> and, and here you are. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> if someone had told that 12-year-old boy in Surrey, you'll probably end up as the Professor of Classical Archaeology at Cambridge, what would you have thought? Uh, I think I would have thought they were mad, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think most other people at the time would have as well. <laughs> um, you're as interested, I know, in what you find as the way you look, aren't yep. you? This whole idea of methodology and yep. the way that we regard things from the past. Can you tell yep. me a bit more about that? For me, what uh, the objects and so on we're digging up are as a way into understanding the past. And what I'm interested in with the Roman world in particular is um, how indigenous people were incorporated into the Roman system. Okay. Conventional ideas, if you go back probably to your school days, Roman Britain, well, the Roman legions arrive and they sort of tell people what to do and they show people civilization and the process of cultural change is very much directed by a superior, in inverted commas, power. And they were superior, were they? Um, no, I don't think they were. Uh, the, they were different and their um, technologies are much more similar to our own. Okay. But Indigenous people in Britain when the Romans arrived were clearly quite sophisticated, had quite sophisticated belief systems. They had, um, if you like, a greener technology than the Roman oh, one. Uh, okay. Much more using organic materials and so forth. So the incorporation of those people into the Roman world is quite a complex and quite a contested area. I mean, especially here in Cambridge, thanks to Monty Python, we're very used to asking, you know, what did the Romans do for us? But what you're interested in also is what did the Britons do for the Romans? So exactly. What did we do for them? One of the curious things, looking from a sort of 21st century perspective back at the Roman world, is that you tend to think in terms of modern imperialist structures about the indigenous people receiving what people like to think of as civilization, though we might doubt that, yeah. uh, being given out. Now, when you look at the Roman world, the Roman world actually works as a sort of sponge that draws ideas and technologies and religion and all kinds of things from all over the areas it okay. incorporates. So what it's, did we give them? Well, we gave them quite a lot of manpower, the people the joined the army yes, and okay. so forth. It's also clear that Britain produced a certain amount of wealth for the Roman world. Um, we know from literary sources and also from archaeological work that they're exploiting silver, gold and uh, tin and so forth, okay. uh, those minerals. Muscle uh, and minerals, OK. Uh, and also agricultural produce. 
certainly at some stages agricultural produce is being exported. The Roman world is much more of a metropolitan mixing pot than we, I think, conventionally tend to think. This idea of remembering and forgetting, Mm. which, of course, you're so intimately bound up with as an archaeologist, but are there periods in history or are there moments in time where remembering and forgetting becomes more important than others. I know that one of the things that you're engaged in right now is the University of Cambridge's own inquiry into the slave trade. That's a two-year investigation that isn't due to report for another year, uh, autumn 2021. I know the findings will be difficult to talk about at this stage, but how have you put together a team of different styles of thinkers? How are you managing the work? The honest answer to that is that the the Vice-Chancellor asked me to do this because of my experience of being head of the School of Arts and Humanities here. I think that what an archaeologist brings to management in that sense is that you've always run multidisciplinary teams and you've had to try and understand where people are coming from. So my skill, if I've got any skill in doing that, is as a manager, not as the academic lead for it. And what we've tried to do is to bring together as an advisory group a series of academics and uh, students from across the university who have the expertise in this. We've recruited a couple of really great postdoctoral researchers who have experience in archives and in the issues around slavery and the period and so forth. And my role is, in a sense, to keep the ground clear for them to do the research whilst uh, fielding the um, the politics around <laughs> the subject within the university and without. Does that give yes. you... Yes, I mean, perhaps your understanding of empire and how empire and indigenous populations work against each other, is that remotely helpful? Well, I think it's, it's helpful in the generic sense that I've got, if you like, a critical understanding of some aspects of imperialism and without that level of understanding you would not wish to get involved with what's quite a contentious area because of the understanding of an interest in imperialism in general and indigenous peoples and so forth i suppose i'm sympathetic to the the project which is probably a prerequisite for doing it Absolutely. And and why this moment for Cambridge to investigate its links to slavery and how it could have possibly profited from it? Well, I think it's partly driven by a change in views that's generational, that 20 or 30 years ago, we wouldn't have thought of doing this. Over the last 10 or 20 years, American universities have engaged in it. Glasgow in this country has sort of paved the way. And that's a response to changing attitudes and changing self-awareness of our place in the world and also our understanding of the impact of imperialism on other populations. So it's, it's driven by the broader contextual understanding of our place in the world. And again, that loops right back to your yeah. sensitivities as an archaeologist. Yeah. When I was listening to your the sound that you gathered at Aldborough, which is the site that you're excavating mm. in North Yorkshire, 
your colleague Rose used the word sensual mm. archaeology yeah. is. You're not just touching with fingertips, you're not just inching forward, taking off layer by layer, but you're listening to the earth, aren't mm. you? And you're watching the earth change. Can you tell me a bit more about that process? When you're physically digging, you're feeling and experiencing the earth as you move it. I think like a lot of other things, that if you use all your senses to experience what's going on, you gain a lot more from it. Though classically, people say, well, you're, when you're digging, you look for the colour change from one layer to the next. Well, actually, I'm colourblind, um, <laughs> so colour's not much, hopefully. Uh, but I can run a trowel across an area, and I can say I think the edge is there from the feel of it. Oh, that's amazing. Um, the texture of soil varies. And as you run your trowel across it, it makes a different noise and so forth. Things that are actually very difficult to convey because they're uh, part of a sort of physical experience of the past. So archaeologists, I mean, there's no ivory tower for you in academia, is it? You are literally getting your hands dirty, getting out there, touching it. But Does that make are, you a different kind of academic? I was taught when I was an undergraduate by a pioneer of archaeological computing who'd never actually been on a site himself oh, at really? all. Oh, he word. just dealt with objects and numbers. So archaeology is actually quite a broad church, okay. some of whom are field people and some of whom are sort of lab people and some people are library people. Where are you happiest? I'm brought up as a field person. I actually enjoy doing the library stuff and the writing and thinking about it as well. But I don't actually think you can really properly understand a site unless you have been involved in taking it apart, which is what excavation does. The amazing thing to me, though, is I was always imagining that you had to dig, but nowadays you're trying to do a lot more surface mapping with radar is that right can you tell me something yeah. about that well if you think about the problem of the roman town we're interested in roman towns as a way into understanding roman culture if you like if we take cambridge today okay and uh, i say well let's take a sample of cambridge and when you do a trench let's say my trench this summer will be about 15 meters by 15 meters and that's okay. a standard sort of That's a standard dig sort size. of dig size okay. that you can do in a month or so. Oh, wow. Well. Um, Needling stuff. Well, yeah, and I say, well, OK, let's go and take a 15 by 15 metre square of Cambridge and then try and write about Cambridge from that sample. Right, yeah, don't pick you, a college lawn. You'll no, just... um, uh, no, you'll be, be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> but you can tell a lot through excavation about a particular place in a very high resolution of detail and okay. the technologies for digging mean that that the resolution of that information gets bigger and bigger every year right the challenge of digging is how do you generalize from the sample my view for a long time has been that if we're interested in towns and cities we need alongside that high resolution detailed evidence the bigger images of how the whole thing fits together. Where archaeology has moved, and sort of archaeology I've been involved with in the last few years has moved, is to say, how can we map the buried totality of towns? And to do that, you move into different forms of remote sensing technology. If you want total information, 
you need sites that have been abandoned or largely abandoned since the Roman period. And you then apply remote sensing technology. And there are basically three methods of doing that. You can look at the electrical resistance of the soil. You can measure the magnetism of the soil using forms of magnetometers. And the third method, which has been around for a long time, but has developed very rapidly in the last few years, is using radar, where you ping a radar signal into the ground and measure the reflections coming back. Could you show me an example of that? Yeah, sure. So you're you're kind of x-raying the ground, are you? Sound mapping the ground. Uh, Yes, the x-ray is quite a good analogy. What you have to imagine, and this is a site in Italy, this is Valerie Novi, where we've worked with our Belgian collaborators from Ghent. Uh, Leven Verdonk has been developing the kit for doing this. With a radar, if you ping a radio signal into the ground, very high energy, as it goes down through the ground, it reflects back off things that are buried. So it gives you not a two-dimensional image, but it gives you a three-dimensional image. And what we're seeing here... That's amazing. That's like a grey postcard of... Yeah, so we're near the surface here. Yeah. And as we go down at the bottom right-hand corner, you can see the depth, so we're about 35 centimetres. Okay. And what you're seeing here are reflections from walls. It slowly gets darker, but then certain bits are coming out whiter. And this is a temple down here. Oh, my goodness. And... If you watch this bit, you can see what's that over there coming through. This is this is like an amphitheatre curve. It's it's, the, right? it's a theatre. <sighs> so that's a semicircle. A semicircle appearing in otherwise dark yeah. earth. Um, and how deep are we there to see that's, that? That's um, about one meter twenty. So one meter twenty, and that's all just waiting for you. Yeah. Oh, and look, there's very clear rectangles up towards the top, yeah. aren't there? These are big houses and temples around the forum. Um, oh my goodness! And, uh, and this is without disturbing a blade this of grass. Is without disturbing a blade of grass, um, it is using a lot of quite high tech equipment, and it's some very very complicated uh, programming because essentially what you get are the reflections at each place that aren't simple they have to be deconvoluted and then you work out what the depths are and you put them all together but when you first saw these images coming up i mean how long ago was that roughly well we started this about three years ago and finished it about 18 months ago and what did you think when you saw it when Um, that when that semicircle and you thought you you asked earlier about the sort of emotional impact of putting your hands on a piece of roman pottery the biggest buzz you get is Levin was out in Italy and you would get an email from Levin saying, here are some results. And you click on the email and you open it up and you see you know, a whole series of Roman buildings that you've oh, never seen before. Under and the surface like, like this. Wow. Now that is real. That is real excitement. Because you're then waiting for the next email two days later. So you see it gradually emerging. It is absolutely magic it is that it's that as yep. you go deeper and deeper and deeper each slice of that image yep. is it's kind of, it's yep. running like a film it, but it's yeah, only slightly emerging like yep. a magic we've picture. we've animated it as as a film there are about 20 billion data points in that it's oh, a massive word. massive data set when 
we talk about the technology in archaeology, this is big data and big computing to produce these images. Um, so this is a simplified animation. You can zoom in on that because it's done at six and a half centimetre resolution. That temple we were looking at, you can zoom in and zoom in and zoom in down to features that are about the size of your hand. So it's here all... you are sitting in Cambridge watching these images yeah. upload. I mean, are you jumping up and down? Are you having a go? Are you oh, yeah, wanting yeah, to be okay. on a plane immediately? Watching leave and collect the data is not very exciting. It's a quad bike and he drives very, very slowly, uh, very carefully to get high resolution images. So it's a, it's like watching paint dry, but the <laughs> results when you get them through from his processing are just stunning, unbelievable. Is this the future of archaeology? Is this where it should be going? Is this well, where, how we should be looking? Well, it, it's a combination because what you get from this is images of what's there now like air photography it's not showing everything right um there are bits that are missing and you can see that here you know you've got some very clear buildings but yeah. there's nothing showing here now that might be because there's nothing there but it may also just be because the stuff's been robbed out uh, removed uh, or is more deeply buried and so forth so it doesn't give us full information but it gives us much more information than we've had before and what you've then got to do is to think now we've got that what else would we want to do to understand things further and that's almost certainly going to involve people probably not me doing some selective excavation too but i mean if you look at the screen you've got up at the moment there's a three quarters of a rectangle at the top yep. of that screen and you can see little dots around the yep. edges of that rectangle and those are columns they're columns yeah that's amazing uh, that building's huge. Uh, this is one we're still debating what it is, because with this, you spend hours in the library trying to look and see, has anyone seen anything like that before? Yes. And we honestly, with that building, we're not sure what it is. There are various uh, discussions going on. So there's quite a lot of further work to be done. But it seems doubtful to me that building is, I think, about 100 metres across. Uh, across. Yeah. Uh, so if you go back to what can you reasonably dig, if you wanted to resolve what that building was, um, you're going to need to do quite a lot of digging yeah. in order to find out because of the scale of it. And the amazing juxtaposition in this picture, what we're seeing is looks like an aerial photograph. So we've got the... the yeah, the, it's a Google Earth. Um, yes, like a Google yep, Earth. Yep. But here are your trees, your ploughed fields. There's a farm building, a contemporary yep. farm building standing yep. there. Farmer going about his business, grazing his whatever's yep. on, the, on that grass. And literally a metre and a half below the surface. Yep. This amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you feel very close to the Romans? Are we all very close to the Romans all the time? I mean, without knowing it. What I think... We are, as archaeologists, very conscious of is the fact that we're living in a landscape that is a creation of layer upon layer of the human past. So when you look at that, that farm building is actually, uh, that's a medieval church. The, the church has gone out of use. The monastic buildings make very good farm buildings, you know, particularly useful for, you know, keeping your tractors and so forth in. And, so in this one uh, image, we're looking at a lot of historical recycling, aren't we? Absolutely. And the whole of the landscape is historical recycling, where the boundaries are, what the structures are and so forth, are always inherited. You don't have a tabula rasa for building and living in. 
Modern archaeology then can work to open up the past for those who inhabit a landscape today, making a complex, multi-layered story visible and accessible. Together with his Cambridge colleague, Dr Rose Ferraby, Millet's continuing work in North Yorkshire on the Aldborough Roman Town project has enabled public and academic engagement with a historic site to move in surprisingly creative directions. Rose Ferraby's a great archaeologist, but she's also a distinguished artist in her own right. Her career straddles the two. From my own perspective, you've already revealed my background as someone who started archaeology young with local people. And I think the genuine engagement of local community in understanding their place through archaeology is a fundamental part of the values that I like to promote. So I don't like going in and just digging or doing archaeological work and ignoring people. I want to involve them. And in Aldborough, we're very fortunate that the community is developed of Friends of Roman Aldborough who support our work and are taking part in the work and so forth. So that's one driver. The other driver is that Rose's practice as an archaeologist and an artist is sort of interlinked. They're two different facets of the same thing. And she's been extremely innovative in exploring various aspects of the archaeology through artistic practice. She's done visual presentation and has developed this very interesting area with artists called St John, who has done soundscapes of Roman Albra. So picking up on not just the sound as you dig and so forth and the natural environment within which you're working which is a, a beautiful soundscape but also trying to think about sound underground so music that has been generated from the geophysics signals uh, we've been doing some coring work to look at the geological history of soundscapes from within the boreholes which are filled with water. So you get this incredible exhibition that Rose has done that now has a sort of virtual presence where you can walk round Aldborough, stop at certain places, um, listen to the music that is the soundscape and she's created a series of paintings that go with that so you have the natural environment the historic landscape the archaeology and the artistic responses to the landscape all interrelated that seems a really exciting way of doing archaeology well it's it's such an imaginative way of doing archaeology because conventionally archaeologists even the archaeologists who like talking to the public talk in archaeological terms, this is what we do and take it or leave it, that isn't great at drawing in a wider understanding. And if you're going to try and communicate with a very wide public, you've got to think about imaginative ways of doing that. And I think what Rose has done through art and the soundscape stuff has just transformed a way of thinking about past landscapes in a way that I don't think anyone else has, has really tried. It's a mixture of science, storytelling, sound layering and careful listening, yeah. all of which are offering a sort of keyhole yeah. into a landscape. And I think one of the, one of the really interesting things about archaeology, people talk about interdisciplinarity. As an archaeologist, where the stuff that we've got in the room here uh, involves intimate 
uh, discussion relations with a whole series of scientists who can do different things with material. Um, and they work we've been looking at with survey you've got mathematicians and geophysicists and so forth so you draw all those together and what rose's stuff is doing is in a sense expanding that out to say that actually the interpretation the viewing of it is also something where um, all kinds of different people have impact so archaeology is a sort of intersection of arts and sciences in a really truly extraordinary way and it is very much how you look and not just what you see, yeah. how you respond and not just what you think yeah. you're looking for. I always say to first-year students when I talk to them first about archaeology, archaeology isn't a series of methods, it's a way of thinking. That's so interesting. Thank you very much indeed, okay. Professor Martin <laughs> Millet, for that amazing window into what you do, all the different areas of your academic life. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Music